Now, friends, as we get underway here in the book of Nehemiah, I want to, again, talk about the writer of the book, the one whose story is told here. And we find that this man, Nehemiah, a friend of Ezra's and a companion of his, and also the other half of him. Nehemiah was a layman. Ezra was a priest. And in the book of Ezra, as we went through it, the emphasis was upon the rebuilding of the temple. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, the emphasis is upon the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. In Ezra, we have the religious aspect of the return. In Nehemiah, we have the political aspect of the return. And Ezra is a fine representative of the priest and scribe. Nehemiah is a noble representative of the businessman. Nehemiah had an important office at the court of the powerful Persian king Artaxerxes. But his heart was with God's people and God's program in Jerusalem. And the personal note here is the chief characteristic of this book. And it's certainly one that we do not want to miss as we get into this very wonderful little book of Nehemiah. I find myself coming to this book again and again and again because of the fact that it is the kind of book that it is. And I'm sure that it's going to be a great blessing to many of us. Now, I think another word that we should emphasize is this. Chronologically, this is the last of the historical books. That is, we'll go no farther in the history of these people in the Old Testament than right here. We have come to the end of the line as far as time is concerned. The Old Testament goes no further as far as the clock or the calendar is concerned. The book of Ezra picks up the thread of the story about 70 years after Second Chronicles. The 70 years' captivity is over, and a remnant returns to the land of Israel. The return under Ezra took place about 50 years after Zerubbabel. Nehemiah returns about 15 years after Ezra. Now, these figures, of course, are approximate, and they're just given to show you the stages in the history of Israel after the captivity. Now, this enables us to see how the 70 weeks of Daniel begin with the book of Nehemiah and not with Ezra. Daniel said, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem under Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. Now, the background of the events of Nehemiah is the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. That's in Daniel 9.25. Now, we find here, if you want dates, the decree of Cyrus was given in 536 B.C. That is recorded in Ezra 1 and the first four verses. And then the decree of Artaxerxes was given in 445 B.C. That is, it was the 20th year of his reign. That's here in the second chapter of Nehemiah, the first eight verses. 
so that the first seven weeks end in 397 B.C., that's Malachi, and then we find that you could just mark out that period of time till the Messiah came, and they should have been waiting on the front door step of that inn, waiting for the announcement of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. God had pinned it down just that much detail. Now, this man, Ezra, you find that he was a priest, and we see it through his eyes. Now, Nehemiah's the layman, we see it through his eyes. These people, having taken the gold cure in Babylon, you see, for 500 years, God had warned his people through the prophets the inevitable result of turning to idols. And they transgressed until finally there was no remedy. And then God sent them into captivity in Babylon. Now, Babylon was the home and mother of idolatry. And the nation Israel got enough of idols in Babylon. And after they learned the lesson, God permitted them to return to the land. And as we've said, there were three separate deportations which returned to the land. Zerubbabel led the first, he's the prince. That's the political side. Then Ezra, he is the priest. And then here's Nehemiah the layman. The king, the priest, the prophet failed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and cleanse the temple. And God raised up a man that we designate a layman. And I think, frankly, it's an unfortunate distinction today. Talk about the clergy and the layman. One's half or the other. We need both. And we don't need that distinction. I started out in the ministry wearing a Prince Albert coat and a wing collar, and I had a derby hat. Oh, my friends, I was frightful looking. When I came out Sunday morning and looked over the pulpit, that white collar and that white shirt, it looked like a mule looking over a whitewash fence. It just wasn't pretty at all. And then one day, as a young preacher came to me, I'm no different than that man sitting down there in the pew. So I took off all that garb, and I wear what the other men wear. I don't wear my sideburns long, and I don't let my hair grow too long. And I'm not an extremist, but I dress like the layman dressed. I was playing golf. Well, there were four of us playing, a foursome. And two of these men had invited a friend, and he was an officer in the church. And so he didn't know I was coming, apparently. They introduced him to me, and he said, Oh, my, not a McGee's here. He said, Now we're going to have to watch our language. Well, you know what I did? I called his hand in a hurry. I said, Now, listen, brother, I'm no different than you are. Now, if you want to cuss, you cuss, if that's the way you do things. But let's understand one thing. Whether I'm here or you here or anybody's here, God hears. God hears your language. It doesn't make any difference whether I hear it or not. You see, that's a false distinction that's been made today. A layman, though, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple. And I believe that even in this day, God can and will raise up a layman to do a great work and put his work on a sure foundation, and it needs rebuilding today.
I'm looking actually to God raising up a young man who will not be a product of our seminaries. I have an objection to that, but I think that as Moody was not a product, and actually Billy Sunday was not, and certainly Billy Graham's not a product of a seminary. But these are men God raises up from time to time. I'm no prophet, but at least we need laymen like Nehemiah. Now, I want you to look at this loyal layman. And there are two things in this book that impress us. One is the little word, so. It occurs 32 times, and it denotes a man of action in few words. And I'm going to call attention to the little word when we come to it again and again and again. And he was that kind of a man. And the two familiar expressions was so. That means he believed in watching and working. And then he believed in praying. Watch and pray or work and pray. They are the two words that are very important to this man. Now, he had a good job in Susa, the capital of Persia. He had a government job. He was a cupbearer to the king. And he could have remained in Susa, a good, honest and moral man. But he would never have been in the record of God or used of God. And I want you to notice some of the things that mark this man out as we now get acquainted with him. And I want to introduce you to Nehemiah, a loyal layman. Here in the first seven chapters, we have rebuilding the walls. Then chapters 8 through 13, revival and reform. And in chapter 1, it's Nehemiah's prayer for the remnant at Jerusalem. Now, notice this. It's a very real story, by the way. And I'm reading the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Chishlu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren came he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, when he means these that had escaped and were left of the captivity, he means those that had returned back to the land. Now, this man, Nehemiah, had not returned back to the land. He just didn't do it. That wasn't the thing that characterized him. He just didn't go back to the land at all. And he took a job. And I'm not going to criticize him because of the fact that God uses men like this, and God uses this man. And you will notice that this man in this position, he had a concern for God's work. And he was deeply concerned about God's cause. One day he was busy at the palace, and since he was very busy there, why, he was going back and forth. And then he saw one of his brethren. he just arrived from Jerusalem, probably bringing a message to the palace. And so Nehemiah just stopped him, and he said to him, "'By the way, how are things going? How's everything back there?' And this is the word he got. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. 
Now, that's not a very pretty picture, as you can see. What a pitiful spectacle God's cause and God's people were in. And may I say, they were in disrepute because his people had failed him. And God can afford to let that happen. Unfortunately, we can't afford that today. And we find here that this man, Nehemiah, now becomes very much concerned about it. That's the reason he had asked. Now, he could have said, Well, it's too bad, brethren. I'm sorry to hear it. And he could have uttered a few more pious platitudes. He says, I'll put you on my prayer list. He could have done that. Or he could have said, Oh, God bless you. There are a lot of Christian cliches we have today that he could have used. I guess maybe didn't know about them. But anyway, the very interesting thing is, he is concerned. Listen to him now when he gets this bad word. It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, there's several things I'd like to call your attention to in this particular verse here that I think are very important. He was not indifferent, and neither is he a carping critic. He could have criticized also. He could have said, now, they should have done this, and they ought to have done the other thing. He was concerned. And again, I come to the same thing that we had back in the book of Ezra. Ezra was concerned. He's a priest. Here's a layman, and he is concerned. I wonder today if those who criticize are concerned, really. I wonder today if those that are pretending that they're interesting, I wonder if they really are concerned. What would we really do for the cause of Christ today? And it is in jeopardy today. Does it concern us? Well, this man, he's a young man, I'm sure of that. Nehemiah was. Ezra was an older man. I even suggest he was probably a little boy at the time of the captivity. But Nehemiah had been born in captivity. And this is the reason that in Ezra, I did not criticize those people for remaining back in Babylon. They were out of God's will. That's obvious, and we'll see that in the book of Esther. But very frankly, there were some very godly people that did not return. Now, why? I don't know. You know, Paul says, Why do you judge another man's servant? Before his own master, he stands or falls. So you and I haven't got any right to judge these people. And I think we ought to be careful of judging other believers when we don't know all of the circumstances. Now, will you notice... This man here, he was concerned. He was really concerned. Now, will you notice what he does here? We are told he sat down and wept. He was out on state business, but it didn't keep him from sitting down and weeping. And he mourned certain days and fasted, and he prayed. And notice, that was the recourse and the resource of these people. That's what Ezra did. Now, Nehemiah does that. He prayed be for the God of heaven. And again, I must call your attention that this expression, he's the God of heaven, it appeared in Ezra, it appears in Nehemiah, also in the book of Daniel. When Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory leave the temple, 
and go out over the city wall up to the top of the Mount of Olives and then caught back into heaven, why, then he's the God of heaven. And he never appeared until one time in Bethlehem, and the angel said, Glory to God in the highest, because he's here, but now veiled in human flesh. And some days coming. And the Lord Jesus himself said, Then shall ye see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. I don't know what that sign is. I rather suspect it's the Shekinah glory of God coming back. But now he's the God of heaven. And now Nehemiah prays to him. Notice what he did. And he said, now here's another great prayer, and we'll get another one in the ninth chapter. He says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. Now, let's pause there for just a moment, because that word terrible there, that has been, I'm afraid, greatly misunderstood, and very frankly, it's been rather abused also. Really and truly, preachers ought not to be called reverend. You know what reverend means? It means terrible. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some of us should be called the terrible Mr. So-and-so. But actually, it was a name that applied to God, and it was a name given to ministers in the old days when they were helped in high regard in the community. That's not true anymore, of course. In fact, it's not even true in the church today. Some church members think they're called upon to try to crucify the preacher. And you generally find... Now, I know there are people who say, oh, my church is different. We don't have folk like that. Maybe you don't. And thank God if you don't. But most churches I'm acquainted with have a little group, just a very small group, that try to crucify the preacher. And they generally do a bad job of it. They would call it a good job, but it is a very bad job. But in the old days, he was called reverend. That was a term of respect. But actually, it means the terrible God, the one who incites terror. And I personally do not think that any preacher ought to be called reverend. I use it, I must confess, but it's not a good name. And you can always detect an unsaved man the way he addresses you. I used to go to a dry cleaning place years ago, and the young fellow that ran it, why, he always said reverend. And from the time I walked in the door till the time I left, he used the term reverend, at least 20 times. He sure wore it out. He was an unsaved man. You'd try to talk with him, but he called you reverend, but he wasn't really paying much attention to what it meant. We ought not to use the term, speaking of ministers. Now, will you notice he's the God that incites terror. And that's an angle that we need to know today. That keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. He's gracious God, but he also is a God of judgment. And then he says, Let thine ears now be attentive, thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, 
which they have sinned? No. He says, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. Now, this man, he nails it down. He said, I'm a sinner. My father's house is a sinner. And as a nation, we're a sinner. Now, how many times do you hear that today in any church where there is that kind of confession of sin? And this man, Nehemiah, he just dropped down to the pavement and he began to weep and he began days of fasting and mourning and prayer. And this is his prayer that he's prayed. Now, first of all, he took his position with the people that I have sinned. What a wonderful thing it is now to take that position. Now, he could have been very pious and said, I'll pray for you. Or he could have been very critical of them. But you don't find him taking that position either. He's not being critical at all. He was concerned, and he wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. Now, I wonder if these days in which we live, if the critics today could only see this man and how he approached the problem. Now, caustic criticism may have its place, and there may be times when it's right, and we do need to hear the truth. But if your criticism does not stir you, does not affect you, doesn't concern you, then leave it alone. I suppose the harshest critic in the Bible was Jeremiah. They put him in the hoose gal. They put him in mud up to his armpits. His criticism burned like fire. It rankled in the soul of the wicked. And he's been called, though, the weeping prophet. His message broke his own heart. Now, if your criticism doesn't concern you, stop it. There's too much talk and not enough tears. There's too many hard things and not enough soft hearts. You're not God's messenger if the message does not break your heart. He was concerned, this man Nehemiah. He was not critical, and he prayed. And it's not work and pray, but pray and work was his motto. And we find here, he made this confession. The failure was because of sin, but he was saying, we have sinned. He said, I have sinned. He's no self-satisfied Pharisaic onlooker. Notice something else here. He says, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. You see, he believed God's word here, as we're going to see. He rested in it, and he knew God's word, and this man is concerned. That's verse 7. Now, verse 8, he says, Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I'll scatter you abroad among the nations. Now, he believed God's word, you see. And he not only believed God's word, he believed in the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. There are a lot of preachers don't believe that today. That's the reason I think God sometimes has to use laymen, because he can't get at those of us that are preachers. But he can sometimes reach a layman. Now, notice this. In verse 9, I'm reading this now. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them... Though thou were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, I'll bring them unto the place that I've chosen to set my name there. 
Now, friends, that's a great prayer. He says, Lord, you said that you'd scatter us if we disobeyed you, and we have. Now you said, though, if we turn to you, and if we come back to you and cast ourselves upon you, and though we be cast in the uttermost parts of the earth, you bring us back to the land. See, he believed that they'd be returned to the land. And he's counting on that, and he's praying about that. Listen to him now. Verse 10, Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Now, verse 11, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, to the prayer of thy servants, who desire to fear thy name, and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, will you notice this for just a moment? It's rather important. Nehemiah was willing and wanting to be used of God. And God heard his prayer. But he's not running ahead of God. He's praying about it, you see here. He said, if you want to use me, I'm making myself available, and I'm going in before the king. And when he's talking to God about the king, he just calls him this man. He says, I'm going in, I'm going to make a request of him. And, by the way, Artaxerxes granted him permission to return. And he didn't want to run ahead of God, as you can see here. Now, that brings us to chapter 2. And we see now Nehemiah's request of the king and his return to Jerusalem and his review of the ruins of Jerusalem. Now, will you notice this? Well, this is rather important. And it came to pass in the month, Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. Now, this is where the seventy weeks of Daniel begin, right at this particular point. Now, he says, in this twentieth year, he was before the king, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. Now, this man, Nehemiah, as we're going to see, he's a delightful fellow. I'd love to have known him. He's the kind of a layman that you like, and there are many laymen like him. Now, he had a political job. He was a cupbearer. Now, cupbearer did this. His function was anything brought to the king, like a glass of wine, he tasted it first. And if he didn't fall down, then the king, he would take it. He had a dangerous job, too, by the way. But a man that was in the presence of the king all the time soon became, shall I say, a friend of the king. Naturally, he would be. And many times, I think the king, when a decision was before him, would ask the cupbearer, so what do you think about this matter? Well, in time, the cupbearer became sort of an advisor. He was a member of the cabinet of the king. And he actually had a very important position. Now, Nehemiah was in the presence of the king all the time. You can see why probably he didn't return. He hoped that someday he might be able to use this position to help his people. Maybe that's the reason he asked about him. Now, he's prepared to make a request to the king, but he's not quite ready. And this day, he doesn't feel very good. He's had this bad news. He's been fasting. 
He's been praying and been mourning. I think his eyes were red, and he didn't look happy. And as he says here, now I had not been before times sad in his presence. He's a bright, cheerful fellow. Everybody liked him. But this day he's sad. Now the king notes it because it's so unlike Nehemiah. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. Nehemiah said, I didn't know it showed. (laughs) He said, I tried to conceal it, but I wasn't able to, apparently. And the king asked me the point-blank question. He said, now, why are you sad? You're not sick physically, so it must be sorrow of the heart. Something's troubling you. Now, the king said to him, tell me what it is. And he was very sore afraid. Verse 3, And I said unto the king, Let the king live forever. And the cupbearer always could say that, you know, wholeheartedly, because, you see, he tasted what came before the king. And he hoped the king stayed in good health, and he hoped he did too. And generally, if the king stayed in good health, he did also. And he said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? When the city, the place of my father's sepulcher, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then he just blurted out, as it were. Why, he says here, Why shouldn't I be sad, O king, my master? Why, the city, my city, the place of my father's sepulchres, my father's are buried back. It lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Now notice this. He says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now this is the first time this word so occurs, but it occurs 32 times. And this man uses this word as a shortcut to get around a lot of protocol and a lot of flowery verbiage that doesn't mean anything. You'll find he goes always right to the point, doesn't beat around the bush. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, right there in the presence of the king. The king said to him, what do you want? You evidently want to make a request to me. What is it that you'd like to ask me? And so Nehemiah just bowed his head, closed his eyes for a moment, and he prayed to the God of heaven. I think it's a very brief prayer, but he says, oh, Lord, help me. I am in a tight spot. Notice what happened, verse 5. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou would send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. He said, I'd like to go back and help back there, if you just grant me a leave of absence. And the king said unto me, and notice this, it's in parenthesis, the queen also sitting by him. Not only was this man, Nehemiah, a young man, I think he was a handsome young man, and he had a very good personality, because court business is very boring, by the way. And I have a notion that many times the king would get involved in some, you know, petty political matter and have to settle it, and it'd be discussed. And so the queen was bored by it, sitting by his side, So she just, you know, started a conversation with Nehemiah. She said, where'd you go on the weekend? And he said, oh, I, you know, being a Jew, why, I went to the synagogue on Saturday. 
And then I took a little trip up the Euphrates River, and we had a boat down there, you know, and we did a little fishing, probably something like that. It was talk along that line. And what happened was this. The king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, and you know what happened? She liked that young fellow, Nehemiah, and she nudged the king in the ribs, and she said to him, let him go. That's what he wants to do, let him go. Then notice what the king said. The king says, how long shall thy journey be? I think he started to say, well, now you know this is a busy season. It's going to be difficult. Nehemiah will let you all, and I don't know whether we can spare you or not. And the queen there nudged him and says, let him go. And then he says, well, how long will this take? And when wilt thou return? King liked him too, you see. We want you back here. Well, he could go into detail here, but he doesn't. Notice what he says. So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Nehemiah's going to get down to business, friend. Oh, there's a lot of wasted verbiage today. I listened the other day on the TV to one of the committees of our government, of the houses of Congress, were meeting, and they were hearing different witnesses concerning a certain matter. And they were listening to a certain lawyer. Did you know I listened to him for 15 minutes, and he could have said what he said in two sentences? Well, he sure did string it out. He took advantage of the fact that he was appearing before this committee and that he was on TV. And I want to tell you, he used a great deal of excess verbiage. His could have been cut down a great deal. And Nehemiah doesn't waste that. He says, so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come unto Judah. This is a difficult trip through dangerous country. Give me letters that will help me. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Nehemiah said, I just trusted the Lord, but I didn't mind asking the king for it. Now, don't you blame me for telling you folk that we want you to support the radio program. One man said to me, don't you trust the Lord? Sure, we trust the Lord. But he wants us to tell you about it because he wants to speak to your heart. And he opened the heart of the king here so that this man now knew the hand of God was upon him. Verse 9, Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. You know that he went up with half the army of Persia. This man, I tell you, was well protected. But the interesting thing is, you remember back in Ezra, that Ezra, he was a priest, and when he went in and requested of the king a permit to go, he wanted to ask for that, but he'd been so eloquent in telling the king how God would take care of them and God would lead them. He said, I was ashamed to ask him for help because he'd say to me, aren't you trusting the Lord? Well, he was trusting the Lord, but he couldn't go back and ask. Now, God did take care of him, but this man, Nehemiah, he's a layman. He's a government official. He has a right to ask for this. 
You see, friends, God's not going to lead all of us alike. He'll lead you one way, and he's going to lead me another way. I made a mistake, even in the beginning of my ministry, trying to imitate a certain preacher. He was highly successful, great preacher, great man of God. And I thought, my, I ought to, you know, I want to be like that man. And I tried it. And one day, an elder of my church called me up. He knew me, known me ever since I was 14 years old. He called me up, and he said, Vernon, he said, I want to have lunch with you. And I went by the bank where he was vice president, and he and I went to his club for lunch. And all he said to me as we sat there, you know, said, we'd rather have an original Vernon McGee than an imitation anybody else. That's all he said. Friends, that's all he needed to say from that day to this. I haven't tried to imitate anybody, and Lord help the man that tried to imitate me. But the thing is, what a tragic thing it is for one man to try to duplicate the other man. God won't lead us alike. Now, Ezra goes up with no support whatsoever. And here comes Nehemiah with half the army of Persia with him. God will use both, if you don't mind. Then we have in verse 10, when he got there, already there's opposition. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. These fellows we're going to meet, there's a threesome here. Geshem the Arabian, we'll meet him later on. These were the enemies of God and the enemies of these people and tried to hinder the building first of the temple, and now they want to hinder the rebuilding of the walls. You see, with this man coming up with this tremendous entourage of servants and soldiers, everybody in the country knew about it. They said, who in the world is this? Well, they said, this is the cupbearer, the secretary of state down in Persia. And he's come up to help these people. He's one of them. And that word got around, and the enemy was grieved. They didn't like that. You know, it's always interesting who gets the good news. It's only who you are, whether it's good news or not. The gospel's not good news to the enemies of the gospel. It's anything but good news. Now, will you notice here, he says, verse 11, and right here he could have written two or three chapters about how he came up to Jerusalem and, my, what the thrilling experiences he had on the way. Well, notice this. He says, so I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. That's it. So, you mark down every time he uses the word so. It's rather important. He's cutting down on a great deal of words. And we talk about word power. This is word power in the absence of them. Now, notice what he does. He did not want to stir up undue alarm. So, verse 12, And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. Now, this man went out at night. No entourage of servants now. This is no parade. He just goes out under cover of darkness, and he makes an inspection to see what the real condition was. He's a real layman, isn't he? This is the way the businessman would do it. Verse 13, And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well into the dung port, 
And I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, to the king's pool. But there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. The debris was so bad that he couldn't even ride a horse. Couldn't ride, go horseback. So he had to dismount. Then he says, verse 15, Then went I up in the night by the brook, and I viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so I returned. That's it. That was the inspection. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. You see, this man is using caution, good judgment in doing God's work. I love to see certain men that I know that are laymen today do a thing for God. If I may be personal, we have here in Southern California a group of men that are on our Through the Bible radio board. They meet regularly. And it's always a great encouragement to me. I'm no businessman, and very candidly, I need advice. And it's marvelous what these men do. I just listen to them as they discuss certain things. And every now and then one will take me to lunch, and he said, Now look, here's something that I think is important as far as radio is concerned. And you know, I never thought of it before. This man, Nehemiah, he intrigues me. You know, I'm anxious to follow him, going to see what he's going to do. Now, having made the inspection, evaluated the work, and made this proper survey, he called a meeting, verse 17, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that ye are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's word that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. Now, Nehemiah called a meeting of the leaders in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. And he told them how God had led him, that he'd taken this leave of absence, he'd come to Jerusalem, that he'd already made the inspection, that he saw what the situation was. And now he says, let's do this. God's with us. Let's do it. And then they all responded to his enthusiasm, and they said, let us rise up and build. Now, Nehemiah was a real leader, a God-inspired leader. And what happened? Well, here's our familiar word again. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Now, he could have given us a great deal of excess verbiage here again and told about how they came together and how they responded to his leadership. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He's a very modest layman that stays in the background. Now, will you notice verse 19? But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Now, here was the enemy, 
three of these. These are nice little trio to have around you, friend. And I suppose that every man of God not only has wonderful laymen around him like Nehemiah, but he also has a few of them like Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian. And the enemy will use different methods to try to discourage you. And generally, the first one is to laugh at you and ridicule you. I remember that when I was first converted, I worked in the bank, and I went the limit. I must confess, I was in grave sin there. And I never shall forget when I made the announcement, I was resigning, and that the Lord had called me to the ministry. I want to tell you, I didn't know you could be ridiculed like that. And I left there. I never shall forget the day I walked out of the place and how discouraged I was. I felt like just giving it all up and going back and say, look, fellas, I was kidding you. I just want to come back and be one of you again. Well, I soon found out I was frozen out, and I lost a lot of my so-called friends. They really were not. Because they didn't go along with that. Because they believed in it was the days of prohibition, drinking that rot gut liquor in that day and running around. And so I went back to school. Oh, how discouraging it was. And I found out since then, when we began this radio program, why, very frankly, the very man that should have supported this radio, why they ridiculed it, why they said they didn't believe in it. And they don't believe in it to this good day. And yet we started out with one program, and I had the support of some good men. And they said, you can do it. And I must confess, along the way, I got very discouraged. And we just believe God is in it, you see. But the enemy started out ridiculing. But he doesn't do that anymore. That is the first phase of the devil's warfare against your friend. He'll have the folk make fun of you and ridicule you as a Christian. And you'll find the going extremely rough. Then notice what happened. This man, Nehemiah, I can't help but love him. I hope you do. Verse 20, he says, Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he'll prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem. What Nehemiah said is this. He said, get out of my way. We're going to work. And God is with us in there. How wonderful. And God was with them.